Welcome to The Thresholds Podcast, sharing the voice of pioneers in spiritual ecology, facilitating new and ancient wisdom for the challenges of our Earth community. This month, Sally Neves interviews the much-loved author, journalist, filmmaker, activist and academic Tracy Sorensen. There really is something in working with the hands it takes you to a different place than if, for example, you were just speaking across the table or, you know, being in a meeting. There's something, there's something quietening um, and it's also about listening. So if you're absorbed in doing something with your hands, um, you're listening in a different way as well as speaking in a different way. It all slows down. Tracy's recent debut novel, The Lucky Galar, is narrated by a Galar named Lucky and celebrates life in the vast West Australian landscape at the time of the moon landing. Tracy is also the co-founder of the craftivist group The Rivianas and is currently working on a PhD in craft and climate change communication. Sally met up with Tracy here at Rahamim Ecology Centre. Welcome Tracy Sorensen back to Rahamim, your... Um Kind of like a member of the furniture here because of your involvement with River Yana's, yeah. uh, and which is supported by Rahamim, and that you come here every week. So welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> You've had an extraordinary, um, well, you have an extraordinary life, I think. Like you're a journalist, filmmaker, lecturer, an award-winning author. We'll talk about your novel later. Um, you're an activist. PhD student and, um, as I said, co-founder of the Rivianas. But I would love to go way back to your childhood to hear about how, how all this began and thinking in terms of your what influence you had in your life, like a religious or a spiritual background or a connection with something, you know, within and beyond – uh, and whatever that means for you, is there something that you can tell us about your childhood that resonates with that question? Okay, so I guess I had the kind of childhood that was just completely um, separate from those kind of concerns. Um, my mother came from a fundamentalist Protestant background um, and you know, very strict and kind of over the top, but I wasn't really aware of that as a child because we were growing up on the other side of the continent to our relatives. Uh, Dad's family, I have no idea. I don't think there's a religious strand there that's in living memory at all. So when I was growing up in the 70s, um, my parents were about um, hedonism and um, <laughs> they... Uh, in in um, the lucky country, Donald Horn talks about um, something in the Australian character, which is almost like nature worship or kind of um, you know an animistic impulse. So I guess in a sense, um, you know, it was like zero in terms of religion, organised religion, but there was a kind of nature worship happening simply by being in it, and my parents just taking in any and every opportunity to be you know, outdoors and in the landscape. Um, I remember once asking Mum, um, what does it mean to be a Christian? And she she just seemed genuinely perplexed by that question. That was a hard one. <laughs> and um, that she finally said, well, I suppose it's where you do the right thing, something like that, <laughs> just completely, you know, not, not, not part of it. Um, the... 
I, I did go to Sunday school right at the end of primary school because a couple of my friends were going, um, but it was really just for the activities yeah. and the sing-alongs and that kind of thing. I don't feel I had any spiritual s stirring whatsoever. Maybe that's all it needs to be. I, I have a profoundly spiritual sense now of the natural world and something greater than we humans and our concerns and um, something profoundly mysterious and I don't know about it and um, I, I need to tolerate not knowing about it and um, enjoy the mystery. Yeah, but that's kind of come later in life really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you were born in Brisbane? Yep. And then raised in Carnarvon? Yes. So was there something that you couldn't draw on, like a memory from those years that um, perhaps links today to that sense of mystery that you hold? Well, uh, the first thing that comes to mind, and I guess it's just a cliche because maybe everyone has this, but it is the night sky, mm. you know. It is being out camping and uh, just, I mean, in Carnarvon we, we had and. Carnarvon still has one of the most profoundly dark, you know, non-light polluted skies on earth. Uh, so the, the stars are almost something that you feel you can reach out and touch. They're always hanging low over you at night, um, you know, on moonless nights in particular. And uh, yeah, I, I, I guess just the sound of the Indian Ocean and the, um, the night sky uh, just all by itself creates that incredible sense of awe and mystery that you mm. never lose. Mm. I was thinking about that when I read your novel, The Lucky Galah, um, and it seems to me that you have a very strong connection with that place, well, Carnarvon where you grew up, which is very similar to the town in the novel. Um, what was the process like for you as, as you were writing that? Yeah, the process of writing The Lucky Galah was, was actually just an incredible process of imagining myself back there. I know uh, the, there's the Dennis Potter who wrote The Singing Detective and a few of those kind of BBC television shows in the 80s. He talks about everything in his life relates to his childhood in the forest of Dean and like absolutely everything and I, I feel the same everything everything I write about and think about and do feels like it was kind of created out of that place at mm. that time and you know it's the thing about time that drives you nuts it's it's, it's vanishing <laughs> you know all the time so um, that time and place will never come back and all I can ever do is try and conjure it again <laughs> in mm. my own mind and, um, you know, and, and visit, notice the similarities and differences. But um, that particular landscape is incredibly powerful. So I feel very lucky to have grown up there where, unlike being in a city, the landscape itself is just monumental. You are definitely tiny in it mm. and it's the sort of landscape that... Um, can drive newly arrived English migrants, for example, completely insane. Um, mm. And um, I kind of partly refer to that in the novel, the, um, you know, the wives of some of the tracking station people who came in the 60s simply couldn't cope with the landscape. I, I think on a psychic level, you know, it's just so 
so massive. So there's this giant blue sky, giant red earth, and then the giant, you know, blue Indian Ocean out to one side. And your sense of yourself is very kind of determined by that in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, it's still it's still very powerful. I mean, maybe everyone feels like this about their hometown, so maybe I'm making too much of it. <laughs> and, and, and we all have this, you know, wherever we grew up and whatever those earliest memories were. But um, there's on Facebook there's a there's a site called I Grew Up in Carnarvon and people constantly share that sense. Uh, constantly and you know it's just a tiny town with just a few you know um, points of interest and people it's almost like a religious ceremony to kind of be com- continuously going over the these sites you know mm. um, the one mile jetty the OTC dish you know um, so yeah and um, yeah so I, I, I guess I guess like Dennis Potter, I'm just constantly drawing on that really powerful um, landscape. Thank you. And so in the story you also draw, well, in a human kind of a way, on the heart and soul of a galah. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear about that process too. Like how do you get inside the thoughts of the very being of an animal and is that something that kind of happens for you often? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, um, well, we, we had a galah out the back door when I was a kid, um, between the back door and the toilet, and um, it copied the flushing of the toilet mm. and um, it, it copied us calling to each other. Um, and, but in hindsight, when, you know, as an adult, looking back on that, I, I really realised she's this, this animal, a bird who is made to fly and she's caught in this tiny it was really a tiny cage when i think about it it was it's terrible to think about now that for over a decade this galah just sat by herself in a little cage mm. um, so at the time i mean i was friends with this galah and very intimate with this galah as a child um, and i remember you know kind of really pressing up against her cage and I would put my fingers in, sometimes she'd bite, but I'd be scratching her and she'd be always begging for more scratches. And mm. so it was very, very involved and very close up. Like I remember really studying, you know, her eyes and the grey skin around her eyes and um, what's called the nictitating eyelid, that, that sort of third eyelid that comes up, you know. So I was, I was really studying this animal. Um, but, yeah, again, it's only... Um, as an adult and and writing this book that um, I really kind of went into the galah and it kind of happened by mistake in a way or or, um, it it just unfolded. I didn't intend it because I was writing a conventional um, third-person omniscient story about the humans Mm -hmm. and I just sort of went into just... It was going to just be one passage, you know, from the point of view of the galah and I just found myself... um, weeping, you know, and identifying with this galah and this voice, this poor little voice that's not being heard, not being noticed. And um, so, yeah, I, I, really, I really went in there. And, of course, it is just a human being trying to imagine something. I, I know nothing. I cannot know. Again, it's a mystery. How does a galah or any animal um, think and feel and be? We don't know. We can't know. But a lot of people assume when they read it 
including you know people in the publishers you know that published it that the, that that this galah in this novel is a kind of a metaphor you know and a lot of people strongly assume that it's a metaphor for the character Linda's you know entrapment in the, a domestic cage um, and that's true this is uh, you know in some ways this galah is a literary device mm -hmm. but actually the galah is also the thing with feathers, you know. Yeah. It's it's an animal. I am I am um, reimagining something about Australia and you know um, our lives from this more than human perspective. I'm I'm having a go, you know. I suppose it's the eco-feminist thing too. There's a real parallel between how women and women's work has always been taken for granted and is sort of the other and just part of the ground on which you're kind of doing more important things. And it's the same with animals, you know, we just don't consider them and they're just part of the, the venue almost. Mm -hmm. And to kind of, so to argue for women to be acknowledged and recognised, it's, it's very similar to animals, you know, like we, who's here? Who's in the room? Who gets to say who's the main actor and who's just the venue? Mm. So I'm, I am exploring and going into that. And to be honest, as I go on, I'm getting worse with this. <laughs> I realise I realize that um, I'm getting a little bit bored by novels and art that's just about the traditional human concerns. Mm. And I realise I am actually now going completely potty. <laughs> and I, I just, I'm just kind of... I just feel there's so much work for us to do as a as a species, you know, to kind of um, reorient as Indigenous people, you know, do and have never stopped um, orienting to what's really here on Earth with us. Yeah, I think we here at Rahamim can re relate to that as well. Like we've broken free of the traditional works of mercy that were always human centred, and we've tried our very best to go beyond that to include the more than human world in whatever it is that we call mercy. Um, and in fact, we notice that the more than human world is, is merciful to us. And so it's, we're trying to flip that um, consciousness as well. So yeah, thanks for that. Beautiful. Yeah, I love the way Rahamim has, has oriented in that direction. It's beautiful. Mm. Just one more thing about the novel. I noticed that you're really, like it's such an Australian novel. It's in the 60s when, um, when, and it's concerned with the moon landing and uh, what is it about that era that you, you seem so nostalgic for and um, what is it perhaps that we've lost? Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. It is actually set just before my conscious time. So it's um, the, you know, I was... Um, not really compass mentis, <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, um, I was born in the 60s but actually grew up in the 70s, so it's kind of reaching back to an era just before mine. But I think, um, I think I've said it in the 60s and not the 70s, partly because I just wanted that incredible transcendent moment of the moon landing to kind of to have it end there. Mm -hmm. And in fact, earlier drafts of the novel kind of almost start with the moon landing and then go into a 1970s, you know, set of preoccupations. But, I mean, you know, I grew up beside this dish that, that is kind of constantly evoking this story of the moon landing. And mm. um, it's just too powerful a thing, you know, mm. to um, just dispense with like that. So it ended up kind of 
turning itself right round and kind of planting itself um, as the culminating kind of image in the in the novel is the is the moon landing. So, um, but what have we lost? Well, we've gained such an enormous amount, and we've lost such an enormous amount. And I guess for me, there's a sense, you know, I mean, partly it's just randomly when I was born, so I'm relating to mm. you know um, an an era that makes sense to me more or less. But there's also there is something about post-war. I, I think I think a particular um, type of Australia, um, I guess you could call it white Australia, reached its high point in the in the 70s probably. So this novel's set just before that. It's like, when I say the high point, it's like obviously only for certain people and things, you know, mm. but in the narrative, in the in the narrative of Australia that we still live under, that was when it was all working and, and happening. So, for example, you know, the fish in the sea, absolutely teeming. University was being made free, you know, by the Whitlam government. There's all, all these kind of... and and But it was also before um, white Australia was thoroughly challenged, you know, as it is now. It is being thoroughly, thoroughly challenged. So it's not about being nostalgic, even though I will always be personally nostalgic for that time. It's about almost for me about saying goodbye to things that need to be said goodbye to. This narrative of Australia is now really hollow and aggressive. Um, When I look at the young people gathering at Gallipoli, drinking beer and being really aggressive, I think that's kind of grabbing on to things now and keeping them going in a very aggressive way that seems to be reaching back to, you know, this kind of big narrative of Australian life, but is actually distorting it and um, using it to create almost a Trumpy, you know, Donald Trump kind of vision of Australia. Like, um, it's been seized. You know, the things I grew up with, and, you know, that includes the annual Anzac Day march and all that kind of stuff. Somehow it's all been kind of, you know, twisted into this much more aggressive um, view of what an Australian is. Um, I was just looking at Facebook this morning on at a, at a car that had on the side of it, um, you know, um, Australia, love it or go home, something like that. And it's that's a really aggressive um, thing of saying this is what Australia is. You know, how, how does, why does one person get to say what Australia is? You know, or whatever, you know. Mm. And so Evan, the character of Evan in The Lucky Gallard, am I allowed to include spoilers? I guess that's up to me, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, we know, we know this. Actually, I'll tell you right at the outset, of course. Yeah, just forgot that for a second. Evan <laughs> dies. Evan, mm. Evan is the very personification of this kind of post-war man. The world was literally his oyster. You can do anything. Here you are. This is this classic... Australian bloke and you know Donald Horne refers to the practical Australian you know it's like this is the you know consummate stereotypical Australian practical bloke and he dies at the end of the Lucky Galah and it's the bird you know this female bird who whose fortunes rise mm. you know so um where was I where did all that begin I've lost it well, thinking about Nostalgia for <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah nostalgia aggression. and what we've lost. Yeah. yeah, so you know, yeah, we've lost, we've lost so much. I've lost so much. I am in grief about the 
the world that I knew in the 70s, it was a rich world and ecologically it is being stuffed mm. and um, I'm in constant grief about that. I'm in grief about, you know, that kind of life that has gone. But at the same time, um, a lot of that narrative about what Australia is needs to go. Mm. It's not enough. Mm. We need to have a bigger, broader, more inclusive sense of what Australia is and particularly the narrative of Australia that's about conquest of the land. Let's put that one to bed. Mm. You know, let us put that one to bed. And sadly, um, what we see at the moment is all this land clearing and all this continued aggressive conquest and domination. Yeah. I guess going from what you're just saying and bringing all of that to the microcosm of Australia that is Bathurst, you have until recently been the president of the Bathurst Community Climate Action Network, BCAN, and you know the secretary, and you're an activist in 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 this place, and a community leader of of Bathurst. Tell us a bit about all all the that you can say that you, you that needs to be said goodbye to, <laughs> and the aggression and all of that. Um, how does how does that play out in your work as an activist? Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel even though I don't like dualism all the time. I feel that we're continuously confronted with two different ways of looking at being here mm. and um, every now and then they just reach completely symbolic moments like, for example, the argument about building a go-kart track on the top of Mount Panorama, Walu. Um, and it's like, that's so symbolic to me. It's like, you know, the... Um, the, 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 elect the um, petrol-fired go-kart track. People want to have this really loud thing on the top of Mount Panorama. It's like, to me, feels like yet again this kind of triumphalism and taking overism. Mm. Um, rather than just letting the top of the mountain, which has trees and birds and grass, and yes, it's a camping site um, and it's historically been, um, you know, the venue for incredible you know, mucking up <laughs> um, as part of the Bathurst races. But, you know, during the week it returns to its quiet trees, grass, top of mountain. And um, so I feel like we're constantly, you know, as activists um, trying to pursue a different way of being in this place, you know, the, the, the conquering, um, land-clearing, you know, all that stuff that was done to establish, you know, a, a colonial outpost and then, and then a thriving agricultural industry. All, all, all the narrative, all the ways of looking at the world that go with that project, um, you know, they're still here, but, but now they're here in the context of not many trees left, not many animals left. You know, like at what point do we stop that, mm. um, that drive and... Um, start doing this other thing, which, you know, again, the eco-feminist thing, I guess, is where I'm at a bit. Um, let's, just, let's just be with the nature that's here. Um, don't dismantle what was created in the past, but understand that there are limits and there are points at which you 
stop aggressively going on with this and say we did that in the 20th century, maybe the 21st century needs to be about um, preserving the scraps, mm. the scraps of biodiversity that we have left in this area. Mm. One of the many campaigns that you had going, I know, in BCAN was to do with electric cars and... There were. Uh, there's been several. Like there's been. There's been a, also a campaign for solar, um, large scale solar farming, yeah. and it seems to me that BCAN has typically been a group that focuses on these sorts of um, technological fixes for the problem of climate change, yeah. climate emergency, and um, and yet you brought something new. It seemed to me as well uh, that was a lot deeper than the, the technological fix. Um, so tell us a bit about how you shifted that consciousness of BCAN members. Yeah, I'm not sure I have shifted that consciousness. Yeah, <laughs> not yet. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think that would be true. <laughs> um, uh, so I guess BCAN is a broad church um, and um, allows different people to um, confront the challenge of climate change in whatever way kind of suits them in a, in a sense. It's kind of quite, you know, we, so we move backwards and forwards, you know, through, you know, through different modes. But, yeah, I, I um, to me, simply switching this economy from fossil fuels to renewable energy leaves everything else um, untouched. And if we don't get to the... Um, root of, you know, this massively consumeristic society, massively resource-hungry, you know, capitalist society, if we don't somehow um, confront that, um, yes, it will help to, you know, introduce this technology, but, it, but, but we're, still, we're still kind of pillaging the earth, you know. Um, so uh, I... Um, to me, confronting and dealing with climate change isn't just about the solution. Um, and this is a hard one for people to get their heads around sometimes. It's like, well, almost impossible, I think, for a lot of people to grasp that. Um, to me, dealing with climate change might also be about dealing with grief. How do we, how do we live with the knowledge of mass extinction? How do we live with the knowledge that the animals we grew up with or knew were around in our childhoods might not be here for much longer or have already gone you know how do we how do we simply deal with ecological destruction and fear and yes there might be solutions that eventually flow out of that but i think we've got to go right back to that communication might simply be about um, discussing and um, consoling ourselves and each other. So that's part of it. Then then also, yeah, I think getting... So again, I, it, it's hard to, not to kind of move into solution-based things, but, but I, do, I do believe that we need a different ethic and a different narrative for our lives in the 21st century. So that is, that is much more connected to the more-than-human world, you know, the world of plants and animals and biodiversity and the web of life and not so connected to individualistic um, triumph over, you know. Um, so, um, you know... 
to me, things like river yarning, where we're just sitting there quietly yarning the Macquarie River and making this longer and longer um, woven, knitted and crocheted river, is kind of does all that to me. It, it kind of com combines consolation, grief. It's a way of speaking to other people um, in the bigger, wider world in a, in a very gentle way that isn't confrontational. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I guess I've brought a bit of that sensibility to, to BCAN um, and, you know, I was really interested in 2015 when this place, Bathurst, um, uh, celebrated 200 years of the establishment of Bathurst. We in BCAN actually... Um, did an exhibition called 200 Plants and Animals. Mm. So, I mean, everyone was obsessed by the, um, you know, the, the wonderful humans who created this life. Yes, that's true. And, and it's not either or, you know. It's like what we wanted to say was and, you know, and what about all these other creatures here with us all that 200 years, sometimes just working incredible slavery, you know, horses, for example. Mm. Um, yeah, I feel... I feel that while for some people their thing might be the techno fix, that's great. For me, you know, if we think of it as an ecosystem, so we don't all have to be doing the same thing, but we can be tackling this problem in a lot of different ways in the ecosystem. For me, I'm much more interested in, um, yeah, creating that ethic of awareness of the web of life. Mm. And I, I feel less and less fascinated by the techn techno fix. I'll, 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 I'll be out there fighting for electric cars, yeah. for um, solar farms, all that kind mm. of stuff, of course, yeah, mm. I think is important. Um, but, yeah, there is another strand to this. Mm. It seems to me that you personally are taking on a lot of the grief, a lot of the, um, the hardship of, you know, more than hardship, the complete destruction of the natural world, the extinction, you take that on uh, quite deeply and and you're also at the same time standing on the edge at the turn of the tide of what's got to come next. Um, how do you maintain both of those things and how do you keep it, keep it going long term? Yeah, I don't know. I... I'm not sure I am doing that effectively and um, I'm constantly, um, you know, you know, falling into emotional responses like grief, um, resentment of hu fellow humans. Resentment, I'll, I'll, I'll sometimes walk down the street and look at everyone and think, what are you people doing? We're, there's a disaster happening and you're all just going shopping. What is it? You know, so I get, get um, angry with my fellow human beings. Um, I find it hard to delegate, you know, so I just, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling all the time. But I must say the, the thing that I find incredibly nourishing is doing the river yarning mm. every Friday afternoon. And um, I'm just staggered by that. It feels light. It feels effortless. It's still on topic. We're still relating to um, these themes and this activism, even. Um, and it, it, yeah, it it does genuinely feel like a way I can do it. And I don't want to universalize that because 
someone else might want to work with football and climate change. You know, like whatever, whoever you are and whatever you bring, that might be different. But for me, um, definitely doing this handicraft on a Friday afternoon with a small group of people where we're actively communing with nature, talking about nature like Wendy's amazing Regent Honeyeater patterns that she knitted. Um, so just the pattern of the Regent Honeyeater, you know, just became this beautiful... Um, length of, of, of patterned knitted wool. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're communing with it, but in a way that's not tearing ourselves apart, not mm. tearing me apart. I find the confrontational, um, you know, argumentative, for example, our big discussion at the council about the go-kart track, that tears me apart. I find that really difficult, that mm. stuff. Other people might enjoy it, you know. Um, but, yeah, to me, um, finding a way to do it long-term, for me, has been really essential. I, uh, the other alternative is to burn out and stop doing it entirely, yeah. you know, which I've seen activists do endlessly over the years and do, for, do myself from time to time. Every now and then I chuck it all in and say, I'm out, Mm. And I find myself back in it mm. <laughs> eventually. Yeah, I can certainly share as a member of Rivianas myself the quiet of, of just the stitching, physically having our hands busy and at the same time hearing each other's grief but also jubilation at times and celebration. Um, it creates something, it does create a container for the grief that can enable us to move on to something else and... I know that you're doing a PhD on this sort of thing, on craft and climate change communication. Is this all worked into your PhD? Yeah, it is. I'm doing this kind of PhD where um, I'm not basing it on interviews or case studies or anything like that. I'm managing to do this thing um, called autoethnography, <laughs> which I'm really pleased is um, available yeah. <laughs> um, because it just means that I find a way of exploring what I'm doing, you know, and I don't have to bother anyone else um, particularly. But I'm just blown away by, you know, kind of moving backwards and forwards between theory and practice. Um, but it really is true, you know, for me. And, and again, we're talking about, a, you know, one person's experience. Some people might say a PhD based on one person's experience is um, uh, not very scientific, but... In the humanities, you know, we have this thing where we are also looking for richer um, exper experiential knowledge, you know, so um, it, it does make sense to me. I think that there really is, as you said, there really is something in working with the hands. Um, it takes you to a different place than if, for example, you were just speaking across the table um, or you know, being in a meeting, there's something there's something quiet and quietening, um, and it's also about listening. So if you're if you're actually absorbed in doing something with your hands, um, you're listening in a different way as well as speaking in a different way. It all slows down, and I I was really um, and that brings a different feeling to the whole thing. It means you're going somewhere else you know you're not necessarily just always leaping to solutions or leaping to activity you're kind of what Donna Haraway says um, you know you're staying with the trouble you can stay with the trouble if you're doing this 
I do remember once when another activist joined us, but she wasn't doing the stitching. Mm. And she was all hyped up about her thing and raved at us. And I could really feel that different energy. Um, like I agreed with everything she was saying, but there was this different energy. If she had had the stitching in her own hands, it would have been very different. Mm. So that was a telling little moment that just, you know, spontaneously occurred. Mm. Um, but, yeah, interesting very to me. Interesting. Mm. So what's the common ground then between climate change communication and craft? <laughs> Okay, I keep boggling my mind over this and I keep boggling my supervisor's mind <laughs> over this and I don't think he's quite getting it. And I, I've kind of got till the end of next year to make my case. <laughs> but I think it is what we've just been saying. Um, you know, communication is so often just posed at things you want to tell others. And mm. I'm saying... Communication can also be about listening, about slowing down, um, about being like a piece of coral. Mm. Um, this is the more um, out there elements of what I'm doing, but like as we stitch, you know, we're just doing these repetitive stitches, but that's kind of how a coral, a piece of coral makes itself or all these other patterns in nature. So we're actually being... We're being a pattern in nature, creating patterns in nature and creating trails. And so I think that this kind of handicraft also can kind of conjure um, a different sense of ourselves in the world. And it is, again, that thing about is it like individual actor and venue or is it this world of continuous co-creation? Um, so that's the kind of theoretical paths mm. you know I'm going down mm. and trying to kind of explore in this PhD. Yeah I remember you telling us about a particular type of stitch that because we're creating the river the whole project started to project water in the Macquarie River Womble and you were telling us about a particular stitch that helped you to feel part of water. Yeah 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 what was happening for you? What's happening <laughs> I'm for not you sure. That's that. an interesting one. I feel, I feel in stitching that I'm part of the patterns of nature, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, I sort of know what I mean by that. It's hard to describe and in some ways you've just got to be doing it mm. uh, to get a sense of that. But again, it's, um, you know, there's the hyperbolic um, uh, uh, crochet stitching that mathematicians and, and environmentalists have noticed uh, kind of can really help visualise curved space, you know, and some of the Einsteinian kind mm. of, you know, um, post-Newtonian physics, you know, and that, that kind of stuff. Um, so that's kind of some of the theory of it. But just just me stitching, I'm I'm there creating. I, I'm I'm involved in creation just as water is involved in creation, just as. Um, you know, so water is flowing and we're just flowing along. And my house is actually now, I mean, we do Rivianas on Friday afternoons, but I'm, I'm now a complete crochet addict. It's like mm. my fidget spinner or something yeah. um, or my cigarettes, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I find that all around the house there's these little bits of 
just curly bits of crochet and I really, you know, it drives my partner nuts. <laughs> um, but I'm just, it's like I'm just emanating this stuff now all the time. Um, so I, fe- I do feel like, um, you know, like the little um, sea urchins or, you know, like those little shell creatures on beaches that leave a little trail as they walk. That That's what our lives are. We're not individuals, even though we think we are. Mm-hmm. We, we are made of each other, you know, and that's where crochet can, to me, crochet and handicraft and things you're doing with your hand can kind of... Um, evoke that mm. evoke that sensibility um yeah that's what that's what it does for me have yeah. you um have you uncovered any other gems or of other techniques people could try in order to reach that place well you know a lot of people um other people you know go rock climbing or you know like just doing something that's completely absorbing people really do um uh swear by it you know that thing about getting out of this chattering chattering raving mind you know takes you to a, a, a quieter place and to me actually helps with grief because it helps with that fact that everything is is disappearing all the time it's complete a complete illusion, you know, um, continuity or, um, you know, that's why it's like when people talk about saving the planet, well, in a sense, that's impossible, of course, because the planet is continuously becoming something else and one day it really won't be here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, it's the planet that we lived in yesterday is not the same as the planet today. You know, mm. just, I mean, you know, like change is this inevitable thing. Mm. Um, so we're kind of caught up in wanting to kind of preserve what what, what we know. Um, and I'm not saying that we should give up by any means, but just that sense of perspective, that bigger time sense, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Like, um, you know, you can get so caught up in... Um, all the fights and arguments about now, but then if you go, if you take it back to kind of geological time, you know, there's this planetary existence that's so much bigger than us. And some people find that freaky. I actually find it consoling, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, at the same time as, of course, wanting to save all our betongs and bandicoots and all the beautiful things that have evolved in this place over millennia and I think it is unbelievably um, – it's, it's almost intolerable knowing that they're being wiped out. And I find it almost intolerable – I'm just raving now – but, you know, this thing of um, monitoring to extinction. You know, the, mm. the other day um, my partner Steve, who's a National Parks Ranger um, – counted that that there were 16 glossy black cockatoos flying over our backyard and it was beautiful. But then he said, um, you know, there's going to be these monitoring stations in New South Wales but then for the glossy black cockatoo, so all this money being spent on monitoring them, but at the same time all this other legislation that the New South Wales government's got which promotes land clearing. So it's like... 
none of this makes sense. Why are we spending a huge amount of money monitoring a species and then also you know, making it legal to wipe out their habitat? Um, so, uh, you know, it's really hard for me to just enjoy looking at birds flying across the sky without having those sorts of dreadful thoughts. I really... Mm. It drives me nuts. So, yeah, river yarning doesn't drive me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a kind of portal into eternity. Yes, you know. it um, is. It's stillness. Is. Mm. Yes, it is. Well, I'd love to finish off by asking you um, a little bit about what inspires you and and maybe who you're reading at the moment and, and what's a good news story happening out there that we should all share. <laughs> All right. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Trauma Cleaner, which is about a woman who goes in and cleans up after um, death and <laughs> suicide. It's oh. actually incredibly joyful and fabulous oh. um, at the same time as dealing with the pain. So I guess art, you know, I mean, this, this is a work of non-fiction, but, you know, it's, there's what always inspires me is, uh, you know, um, being able to talk about these things, being able to share them and and so on. So it's not that wonderful revelation every now and then. It's ju- it's not just me, you know, sitting here trying to deal with it all. <laughs> you know, and I can get into that state. So art, reading a book, um, all that kind of stuff. The garden, just seeing seeing. Um, no, marigolds growing in the garden. Mm. All, all those small things, the bees on the, um, on the rosemary out the back. Uh, yeah. Yeah, art and nature are unbelievably inspiring all the time. That never gets old mm. for me. That's beautiful. And would you mind finishing by reading a passage from your novel, The Lucky Galah? Okay. I told myself stories, lots of funny stories. I laughed to myself a lot. Sometimes I'd make myself weep. I'd spend days crafting something elegant, something funny, something snaking this way and that, doubling back on itself like a galar in flight. Something to make you wonder, something to stop time, something to pass time, something to make you sit by my cage, spellbound. I had the story. I was bursting to tell it but I had no way to tell it. I'd have the words on the tip of my bulbous tongue, but when I opened my beak, all I could say was, dance, cocky, dance, or cocky, want to drink, or hello, cocky, or shut up, cocky. That's when I'd scream in frustration. There was no greater frustration than that. I'd have the funniest, wittiest, cutest little story and no way to tell it. Thank you so much, Tracy. Could you just tell us what made you choose that passage for us? I wanted to get the galah's voice. I wanted to mm. get the, 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 that sense of a, a caged galah wanting to tell us something. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, she does. She writes this whole novel. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for all that you have given us in terms of expanding us beyond the human world to the more than human world and the whole relationship of the web of life and also the <laughs> downright practical things that you keep doing in all your activist activist.
projects and um, we hope that that continues. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Sally. The Thresholds team at Rahamim live, work and create this podcast on the lands which have always been and always will be Wiradjuri country. We give our respect and gratitude to the elders past, present and emerging who continue to teach us ancient wisdom for living in harmony within Earth's limits. Rahamim Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea, facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy. For more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim, that's R-A-H-A-M for Mary, I-M for Mary, .org.au. The Thresholds podcast is edited by Anastasia Freeman.